I had a few problems this weekend. Really? What were those problems? Um, well, so it kind of started on Friday evening when I got home and I, you know, did a number two, you know, as okay. as is the tradition. And uh, when I flushed, I noticed that it went into the bathtub. That is not good. That is not good indeed. So uh, I, you know, called the landlord and unfortunately... Like, the earliest he could get a plumber to come out is, like, first thing Monday. So, uh, I'm like, okay, well, I guess I have to do everything everywhere else. Uh, but in the meantime, I had a step stool and a basin in the basement. Okay. So, uh, I managed to work through that. So, uh, with that, I didn't have any compunction against spending a lot of time at the mall. Like, you know, getting my car inspected, which apparently takes all day. At the end of which, uh, I was informed that I would be spending, like, $2,000 to replace my entire exhaust system. So, I'm like, um, yeah, the actual inspection sticker is not up until the end of the month. So, I have some time to, um, figure out what I'm going to do about that. So, uh, going around and getting some estimates... So I think I might have a good deal on that now. That's good. That's it's probably a good idea not to give the place that inspects the car your business to fix it since they kind of have a conflict of interest well, there. Well, I mean, pretty much any reputable uh, car place around here will do that. Well, I mean, by that I mean inspection. Yes, I'm saying it's still nice not to. Also, expected in the place you have it fixed. Also, apparently Sears does not weld. Sears does not weld. This is Control Structure, episode 105 for April 6th, 2016. Big, huge week to everyone listening. This show has notes. If you're not looking at them... Please visit thenexus.tv slash cs105 to see them. Uh, I am your host, Andrew Bailey, and uh, with me this week is my other host, Stephen Orvis. Hi. Hi. Um, And uh, so apparently we decided to spare you the grief, and we managed to chase off Chris before uh, things got too bad. He's gone. Yes, he is indeed gone. So... It seems like my exhaust system in my car is leaking at all the welds. All the welds? So it's not like rusted out, it's just like broken at the welds or something? Uh, well, it, they're starting to fail anyway. And, oh yeah, the mufflers themselves need, are pretty much completely shot, they need completely replaced anyway. So, which I was sort of informed a while ago that at one of them was. Okay. So, yeah, it looks like I might still have to pay... Upwards of a thousand bucks. Quite a bit. Yes. So, um, anyways, uh, uh, so my pass for the T is finally valid, so I can finally go almost wherever I want to. Uh, well, at least north of here on the on the T. Nice. So, have you uh, made any big trips other than to work? So, so uh, on the first. I, you know, of course, went to work on the tea, came back on the tea. Um, so, by the way, would you happen to know, or at least guess, what a special rail shuttle is? 
especially I don't exactly know. Okay, but it's there because the line is out. Like there's like no service like oh, so for, wait like way further up. So the train is not working so they put you on a bus and bus you. That's what I thought. But apparently because the line is technically out like way further up the line, huh? It's just like normal service except it's free and it does not go as far. Okay. <laughs> so that's what they apparently mean by rail shuttle. Interesting. And so you've already paid for your paths, though, for yes. the whole month or whatever. Yeah. So it didn't save you any money anyways. Right. Because it's free. Yes. Uh, the good part is, this is going to go on for about another six months. So, like, I you know, can take advantage of it then. So you can go to work after your, your pass expires. I assume you bought the month one. Yeah. You can now go to work for free for, like, six months. Yeah. And also go downtown as much as I want to for the uh, for the remainder of the calendar month. That somehow seems kind of messed up and a kind of poor business strategy. Well, it there apparently this line really had some big problems over the past like ten years. Like apparently over the past ten years they needed to repair it like twenty two times. So they're like, okay, we'll suffer the pain, just fix it. So, um, so then also, uh, the first was my birthday. Uh, so I decided to celebrate and go downtown, walk around a little bit, uh, and by a little bit, I mean like half an hour and a half. And, uh, yeah, I kind of enjoyed that. Very nice. So and happy late birthday. Thank you. Um, so, uh, yeah, meanwhile, uh, the weather has not been cooperating, so I want to take it even more. So, and it's really good exercise, too. So, oh, and by the way, the time I was stuck at the mall, I was able to look at bikes and buy shoes. There you go. So, do you have a bike picked out? I do. So, uh, like, there's a bike shop, like, across the street from the mm -hmm. mall. And it's, like, on the side where the T station is down there. That makes it handy for access. Yes. Plus, you can put the bikes on the T. There you go. So, win, 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 lose a lot of money on the car. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Um, so, also, uh, last episode, uh, we talked about Diablo for a little bit. Yes. And I mentioned that I was playing it on the 20th century. So, uh, for, uh, let's see, I first played it like 15 years ago. I finally beat it. <laughs> Like, uh, like very early Saturday morning. So I was fighting and killing, like, the most terrible demons at, like, 1.30 a.m. So, uh, uh, but yeah, that gives me complete satisfaction. Um, yeah. Are there any games that you have that you just kind of, like, decided, like, I'm never going to beat this or something? Or there is, is there a game that was like that and you eventually did beat it? I I think the closest game that comes to mind when I heard that was an old, old game called OutRun uh, that used to work. It was, I think it was a DOS game. I remember playing it on an old 3.1 machine, so that gives you the date era, <laughs> approximately. And uh, it had race cars in it, and you would race them, and it was pretty tough to get to the end level. Uh, I felt like sometimes I did, but it, overall, it just... Uh, 
pretty much was impossible to make it all the way through uh, driving it. Uh, it was just too hard to crash, and you ran out of time and lost again. Too hard to crash. That sounds like a pretty easy game. Well, I meant uh, it was too easy to crash. Okay. That way. Okay, I can understand that. So it was a fun game, though. Um, the good classics. Let's see. I have another one of those games, and it's called X3. Uh, I think it was Reunion. But, uh, uh, like, I've, since, you know, going through all the stuff with uh, Star Citizen, I want to get back into, you know, like, maybe doing some space games. And, uh, you know, the X series seems to be a pretty large, expansive thing. And then I started playing the first one, and I realized that it's basically a spreadsheet simulator. A spreadsheet simulator? Well, okay, maybe not spreadsheet, but an economic simulator. Okay. So you're, like, setting up the economics and playing with things? Well, like, trading, building factories, okay. and, like, supplying things for those. Um, oh, there it is. 1987. Wow. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Let's see. Another thing about 20th century is that it's getting an upgrade. Uh, so, do you know things called compact flashcards? Compact flashcards. Uh, I think those are the memory cards that cameras used to use years back. Yes, kind of like uh, these. Uh-huh, yep. They're kind of big and clunky looking. So, apparently, compact flashcards use, like, the IDE interface. Oh, really? So, uh, 20th Century is getting a solid-state drive. <laughs> That's awesome. So... Uh, do the speeds measure up to be faster than, like, a hard drive, or are you thinking the random access uh, ability is going to give you a boost? Uh, I'm not exactly sure. So, uh, I bought an adapter that puts that goes into an expansion slot, and uh, a 64-gig card is uh, going to be here tomorrow. So, uh, maybe by the time everyone else hears this, uh, I will be... Toying around with that. You have to uh, put it through its paces and do some benchmarking to compare the hard drive with uh, the solid state and see which one comes out on top. So uh, right now, uh, like the read speeds from the hard drive, like don't really go over 10 megabytes per second. Okay. So uh, so that's like sort of like a general like low lying level. So like I'll, I might reinstall Windows 98. So, like, I think the uh, USB drivers I put on there for, like, thumb drives uh, kind of messed up something, and some parts of it think it's Windows ME. <laughs> That's kind of messed up. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I, I remember that with the flash drives, it just really didn't have native support for them. I remember carrying around a floppy disk of the drivers for my brother's flash drive because the drivers for my flash drive weren't too big to fit on a floppy disk, so I put them on my brother's flash drive. So if I needed to install my drivers, I install his drivers, download the files from his flash drive, then install my drivers, then I'm good to go. So it's kind of like uh, bootstrapping your flash drive. Bootstrapping the flash drive, you're right. <laughs> so uh, those times. Yeah, um, and also I... Uh, also downloaded a, a virtual drive emulator, so I have a few ISOs on my 40 gigabyte hard drive. Whoa. But soon it's going to be like 60 gigabytes so big. Such an upgrade. 
so now for this episode's LOL Node.js. <laughs> so someone decided that one of their micro-modules should not exist anymore, and they unpublished it from NPM. So due to the sprawling external module and package requirements that are endemic to the entire ecosystem, this broke pretty much everything. That showed them, and they learned. It seems like they have a fairly comprehensive uh, plan they put forth of at least initial steps. Uh, like they were putting in a 24-hour period. Yes. After you publish it, you have to talk to support before you unpublish well, things. So, uh, like the whole thing about this is that you know the amount of like dependencies in the Node.js ecosystem is absolutely insane. Like. For one of the popular frameworks, we'll pull in, like, several dozen thousand dependencies. And they're all little little JS functions everywhere in their own little file. So the, the question is, is it more efficient to package, like, come up with a common set and package them together, similar to the .NET framework, and always make people include the entire set of dependencies all the time? Or... Depends on, like, uh, since it's JavaScript, it can be easily shoved into a browser and downloaded. Mm -hmm. So having huge sprawling frameworks might be a little bad for, like, download speed. <laughs> so despite the the uh, so, downside to dependent, many dependencies, maybe that's a system that's grown that way because that favors web browsers and being able to download on the fly. So, uh, anyways, back to the thousands of dependencies. So if one of them, uh, like, disappears, things start to break, and the whole thing starts crashing down. Uh, so that's why they're sort of revising their, you know, uh, taking this down policy. So within 24 hours, you can take anything down, no problem. You do it yourself. Afterwards, you need to contact their support, which at this point they seem to be pretty amicable about taking your thing down, if given correct, you know, sensible reasons, I guess. I think they, they're just trying to take the automation away, so it gives support a chance to just Google it quickly, like, does this seem like this makes sense, or might this break the internet? Um, or, oh crap, I put my public API key in Oops. there or something. So, yeah. The interesting thing about this is what caused it to happen, oh, which is what you go into right yeah. there, uh, is this guy actually made a thing called left pad, which puts spacing in on the left side. Of strings. Yes, of strings, which is really simple, but it's the foundational building block for a lot of stuff on the like, internet. Like uh, line numbers in editors. Yes, and uh, there was a package he had called Kick, if I'm pronouncing yeah. it right, and there's apparently a company that has a messaging app also called Kick, and they wanted that guy to take his package down so they could use that name. Uh, he refused, and they, talk, they talked to NPM, and uh, they went ahead and gave it to him, so this guy decided to stick everyone and <laughs> unpublish all of his packages. And goodbye, internet. Goodbye, internet. So, uh, Microsoft Build 2016 happened, and a lot of really interesting things happened there. Um, so, uh, let's go ahead and start off with their uh, augmented reality. 
uh, HoloLens. So uh, at the conference there, they had a uh, virtual walk you could do uh, from a Mars rover. You could kind of walk around on Mars and take a look at uh, what the Mars rover has been seeing. So it's like a real-life uh, view of it. And uh, I guess it was announced that they're also going to be shipping the HoloLens to developers, I guess, uh, for their $3,000 a piece price. So uh, hopefully developers will be making code for that really soon. Yep. Another thing that uh, they had going on there was a real-time perception uh, intelligence uh, that can guess both age and gender of a person. Uh, they showed a video, though, of someone standing in front of the... Uh, yes, it's that video there. In front of the screen. And as they walk forwards and backwards, it starts to guess that they're a 36-year-old and a female. Then they're a 40-year-old male. Then they're, like, a 24-year-old female. So it seems to be a little bit broken, just maybe, uh, but a neat concept, but definitely some more work on that one. So um, I think there was like some other thing that did this relatively accurately, but it was just like with still probably better resolution photos. I've seen websites doing stuff like this before, yeah. and yeah, I, I think it's a solvable problem. I think it just needs more time. So, um, again, with the uh, sort of perception technology, uh, wait, we already did this. Yeah, perception intelligence can guess age and gender, still needs some work. Uh, so let's talk about some of the uh, tools going on here, uh, like Xamarin. Uh, so uh, Xamarin was formerly a company that made the Mono framework. Uh, so... They were bought by Microsoft a couple of months ago, and it looks like their SDK, which I believe is like all about phones and stuff, mm -hmm. like you can write one thing and deploy to both uh, Android and iOS. That, and even Windows. And even Windows Phone, presumably. You can do all three. Uh, that this SDK will be uh, coming with Visual Studio. Yes. So this is... Interesting slash scary. So it was like a another company. Uh, even the I'm trying to think of the predecessor to Xamarin. There's another. Oh, the Mono IDE itself yeah. was the open source version before Xamarin kind of took over. So now it's like the way to write .NET code in Linux is no longer a open source thing, but something owned by Microsoft, which is a bit scary, but good that Microsoft is apparently now supporting that. But isn't, like, Visual Studio open source anyway now? Uh, I believe there was their Community Edition. At Maybe least it's free. That. Yeah, their Community Edition is free. So I, I liked, I was kind of sad when Xamarin took over MonoDevelop because, I mean, yes, they polished it, but MonoDevelop, they put some restrictions on, like, your app sizes and stuff, and so they let you use it for free, kind of, and I, I didn't understand why the open source community moved away from the free tool and let a company run it. Sounds like something else was happening there. Suspicious. Yes. But in uh, other things, apparently Microsoft thinks chatbots were the next big thing. And by chatbot, they would mean, for instance, uh, hello, Microsoft, I'd like to order a pizza. And you would tell them what you want on your pizza, and it would apparently place the order for you. Yeah, uh, I, I happened to uh, look at the, uh, uh, I don't know, like the keynote speech exactly when they were doing this. So, like, the whole idea of bots seems kind of negative. Like, when you're, like, in a chat room or something, you know, bots, they're, like, 
only good to be like ignored. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, this is kind of stupid. And like, why would anybody do anything like this? But, you know, it's more of that perception than their utility right now. See, see, the thing is, you, a lot of people already have this, though. They have, okay, Google on their phone if they have an Android. And it, like I heard you this evening, Andrew, using it to set your alarm. I use it to set my alarm. It's incredibly useful for setting and, alarm. And apologies and, for anyone we just okay Google bombed. Yes, we probably did just Google Andrew uh, setting his alarm. <laughs> or, or uh, sorry, Ryan. Or uh, Ian. We, we know how sensitive your phones are to this. We'll try to not say, okay, that word. <laughs> okay, Google, beam me up, Scotty. <laughs> okay, but uh, it's it's definitely a a thing of the future because it's a natural way to interface with computers. Uh, it feels like Google is just wanting to jump on the bandwagon. I know that they're doing a little bit different, though, in that they're not just focusing on Windows with Cortana or their app that they're having with uh, uh, Android on Cortana, but they're also trying to get some focus on IoT, so it sounds like their their partnership... I didn't mention the Raspberry Pi in there, but I'm wondering if like their partnership with the Raspberry Pi and Windows 10, if maybe they're thinking that you could be talking to devices in a room or whatnot that are internet-connected. Uh, so that might actually tie in to uh, Cortana, although they didn't exactly have any uh, bot plus Cortana action. Uh, so Cortana is the okay that word microsoft equivalent uh so uh, it'll it's is going to be coming to android uh so soon the cortana personal assistant app for android will be able to display all handset notifications on the desktop so i guess at this point i guess they're talking about like windows desktop i think that's probably what they're thinking is integrating the interesting thing is they're actually like wanting to work with Android instead of being no, you must use our product. This is kind of following the new new Microsoft. Yeah. The, the Microsoft is the new Google. The Google is the Microsoft thing, <laughs> and they're wanting to work with other products, be open and compatible, which is actually uh, kind of handy when you know make it useful because a lot of people have Android and apparently Microsoft is recognizing that and saying, hey, if you want Android, you can use Android. Yeah, you know, Microsoft has finally gotten on board with the idea of if you can't beat them, join them. Yeah. Which, okay, yeah, I, you know, I can understand that. So there's a new version of Visual Studio apparently coming out uh, sometime this year. I uh, didn't see too many features on it uh, other than it did mention that there's an any code feature, which lets you edit code without a solution or project file. That is... A really interesting idea, uh, but I guess the open source world has kind of been doing that for a very, very, very long time. It's about time. Microsoft project files, solution files are really painful. Especially they put... Okay, this is the best one. Their binding for source control is within the solution file. So if you change, like, your... No way! If you change, like, source control providers or... Like different server, you have to like change stuff yeah. inside the solution file to make it work, which is annoying if you're using Git and uh, collaboration with uh, Microsoft Source Control. Anyways, uh, so uh, 
I'm pretty sure that Visual Studio, if it's not already on Linux, will be on Linux. Yes, and I think we did talk about it, the Community Edition being on Linux, maybe yeah. a few months back. Um, so, And we definitely know .NET is now on Linux. Yes. Um, we have uh, Windows on Linux called Wine. Uh, SQL Server will be coming to Linux. Um, so how about won't we, you know, this whole insanity needs to stop. We need to pull back, go in reverse. How about Ubuntu on Windows? Or more specifically, uh, Bash scripts on Windows. Yeah. Um, although I think, uh, like they went a little bit further and said, yeah, this is going to be like the whole Ubuntu ecosystem in here. So you can do like apt-get and stuff. Which would be kind of neat, is that's really the, that's where everyone says Windows is valid, is you don't have that common repository, and they've tried to do that with their their store, but like as we've talked to other episodes, it seems like it's going to be locked down, not very accessible, but then suddenly with this, if you could actually access things in AppGet, it's like, hey, there's like a lot of stuff I could use for free. So... Like, that means I won't have to, you know, launch a virtual machine in order to develop my stuff anymore. Mm -hmm. And a lot of other people. So, uh, this appears to be the real Bash with a whole GNU Core Utils ecosystem. So you can do wget, like, the real one on Windows. So, like, this is the real Bash and not the fake Mac Bash. Because apparently Bash is on Mac, but uh, apparently doesn't have the Core Utils in it. So I've, I've played with Macs just one or once or twice and ran, like, basic Unix-style commands on it, and they the common, well-known ones worked, but it just seemed like certain commands were missing. I can't remember what commands, but it did essentially seem the same. So, uh, and don't forget that uh, OpenSSH is coming to Windows also. You remember, like, way back when? Because, like, they were going to be integrating into... Uh, Windows because, you know, people were saying, oh, we have these Linux instances on Azure, and we want to, like, communicate with them, like, easily. I see. Oh, right. That was with the... Okay. I got another SSH. That um, fits in well with this change, then. Yeah. So, like, uh, for as much as I can tell, that also includes SSH, uh, or no, it would be SFTP. You know, the FTP over SSH. Um, And... I haven't heard of this anywhere, but I would love to map a drive letter to uh, SSH uh, F- SFTP. So, sure, it's possible, but so, this would make it more officially possible. But like they've actually established here that that there won't be any Linux to Windows communication that much. So, like, unfortunately, you can't have like a SFTP client running in the Linux space to map to a drive in the Windows space. So did you understand them to see almost two operating systems coexisting together, really, on the same file system? Is that more so what you saw? No. It's more the wine approach Mm -hmm. in that, you know, these are, are, you know, unmolested binary files from... Ubuntu running on Windows, yeah. so it just has the uh, like all the libraries 
and Windows sort of understands the binary format. I've seen something like this before, way back when in college, there was a Linux closet hook, and they had like this emulator you would run on Windows, and it had like a bash would come up, and you could like run the different commands. It was different than like the say with the git bash or something installed. It was kind of different than that they had it locked in. It was a similar concept. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. So the Internet of Things is bad. So Google will not only cease support for the uh, uh, was it the Revolve Home Automation Hub, but it is disabling all of its functionality. In other words, bricking it. So uh, this is about Google choosing to turn off a product that people have bought, trusting that it would uh, be usable in years to come. So uh, in October 2014, Nest acquired Revolve, a smart home device maker, nine months after it itself was bought by Google. Uh, it itself, meaning Nest, was bought by Google. Uh, the terms of the deal were not disclosed, blah, blah, blah. Uh, buying a company for talent rather than products or users. Um, so Revolve's team was to work on Work With Nest, uh, Nest's API program, but customers' existing products would continue to be supported until recently. Uh, just over a month ago, they updated the website to announce that it is closing down completely, pulling the plug on its existing products in May. Uh, so, uh, yeah, as one customer points uh, puts it, uh, Alphabet, uh, that is the parent company, is intentionally bricking devices as of May 15th, 2016. So I think this is in some way wrong because the, the people bought them on good faith that it would continue to work. When you buy software like that, you kind of expect, not software, the hardware and software, you expect it to keep working. Yeah. And that's, like, I, I thought about this, things like this before I have, uh, a device called OBTalk that plugs with my Google Voice and lets me use a phone, a normal phone with that. I was concerned about that at first because like, I'm really dependent upon their services to make it work. But then I realized when I got it that their online website integration was just like a configuration that was pretty for the actual device. You could go in and configure the device uh, manually if you wanted to. It would just be a whole lot harder. Uh, okay. So it was like they, they, they had this problem but they solved it by making still making the device independent of their services. It just made their services make your experience seamless. In contrast, this company has failed in that they didn't make the device autonomous. They made it dependent upon their services yeah. to keep working. So Arlo Gilbert, CEO of a medical app company, Televero, is infuriated by the decision. And he wrote an entire uh, blog post about the time that Tony Fidel sold, sold me a container of hummus, which is seems to be pretty similar to the device and how it looks. And uh, you know, he goes on about how you know he essentially feels betrayed. And you know, granted, you know this is you know a nice device. And uh, you know, let's see. At some point, he talks about uh, you know. Uh, you know, of course, you know, they're intentionally bricking the stuff. So, you know, he realizes that it's not the end of the world. The fact is that I can fix the problem by purchase, purchasing a replacement device like a Samsung SmartThings hub. It's not terribly expensive, a few hundred dollars. So, uh, you know, after reading all of this, uh, I essentially 
posted a comment that it's time that IoT vendors understand that they are making devices that are parts of homes themselves, and those things have life cycles of decades, not months. Many people do not like to unnail and unscrew everything every two years because the manufacturer decided to not maintain things anymore, whereas the dumb equivalents did not need that much to begin with, uh, much maintenance to begin with, rather. So how many phones and computers have you replaced in the past 20 years? When was the last time you replaced the outlets that they plug into? IoT has a very long way to go to be viable for people like moms and dads. And, you know, about the comment that, you know, getting a Samsung SmartThings hub for a few hundred dollars, well, many people think that is terribly expensive to keep novelty automation happening. Uh, and from what I've heard about Samsung's touchscreen refrigerators, I bet that life cycle won't be that much better. That's the thing is, people are going to, if they're going to keep getting burnt by this type of thing, they aren't going to buy it, and so the market's not going to take off. It's going to need... People are going to have to feel safe about it once this type of thing starts getting out before they start buying it and everyone adopts. Or people are going to have to start understanding that, you know, if they buy a smart device or pretty much anything with a touchscreen, that it is now a technology product. Mm -hmm. And it goes on the technology product life cycle, which is every two years, get a new one. So the, uh, there is a, uh, well, the U.S. government might be going open source in some way. There is a draft policy that proposes that all custom-built software for any agency of the government must be open source. So you know, this is a good step, I think, because like there's a lot of redundancies that go on in government. Mm -hmm. So... Like, there's a lot of contractors that are essentially rebuilding the same thing over and over again. So, you know, if there's something out there already, use it or, you know, modify it to fit your needs. And, like, all the other, you know, work will be saved. It's nice, too, because it lets uh, people poke around and kick the tires, too, depending upon what it is. A thing that came to my mind, and I don't know that if this would cover it. But you know what? It would be really nice to be able to read the source code for the like the voting machines. Yeah, that might be a little important. That that would be nice to have that source code and just be like, hey, I I can see it. I can find bugs in it. If I really don't trust this machine, I can go just kind of look and see. Well, how does it work? Because there's a lot of stories up, up, out there about the machines not working. So that would just be one application where normal people might want to. Uh, creep on the government and just see exactly what did they use. So, and another thing that I like about this particular website is that it's uh, secured with Let's Encrypt. <laughs> nice. And one th interesting thing about that is they said they wouldn't, they wouldn't uh, be doing this for existing software, or at least requiring it. They might encourage it, but not require it per se. So it so. seems to cover it from a security standpoint. If they like hard code passwords or something. They don't have to show everyone. Yeah. So there's a newer cipher going around that is a decent alternative to AES. So AES is the advanced encryption standard that's been around for like 15, 16 years. It's has not been cracked yet. It's still pretty solid. The uh, block chaining method, uh, mechanisms are still a little iffy. 
but on a whole, it's still pretty good. Um, so what if there's a time when AES gets cracked? Well, it would be nice if we had an alternative, and we actually have one, and it's been going around for a little while. Uh, Google has especially hopped on uh, this one particular cipher uh, for about the past two years. It's called ChaCha20, and it is accompanied by the uh, hashing algorithm Poly1305. I'm not exactly sure where those numbers come from, uh, but it might just be like some part of the formula inside. Uh, but it's a, a called a, an authenticated encryption and associated data type of cipher. So what this means is that you know you get your data and data that essentially verifies it. You know it essentially you know essentially proves that this data came from where you thought it came from. Uh, you know, uh, so it's, it's less, uh, how should I say, it's less divisible into those parts. So you can't really easily modify one without changing the other. Uh, another thing is, is that unlike AES, which is a block cipher, ChaCha20 is a stream cipher. So, like, there's a few uh, different properties that are associated with that. So it's not an exact one-to-one equivalent, but it is competitive and it is a viable alternative. So what implications of it being a stream cipher versus a block cipher does that have? Not much. It, I think it's, uh, it means that it's more flexible in the chunks of data that it can process at a time. So the size you're saying yeah. you can do a bigger so so like AES operates on a block size of like was it a 128 bytes or something so like a stream cipher is a little bit more flexible when it mm-hmm. comes to that um, another thing is is that at least currently it seems to be quite a bit slower than AES but uh, for processors that do not have any kind of acceleration for AES. ChaCha20 is indeed faster in those particular instances. And for a lot of cell phones, that's what is used. In fact, it is in Android that ChaCha20 is, uh, I should say, preferred over AES if it's supported. So um, it looks like this cipher is going to be supported in the forthcoming TLS 1.3 standard which right now appears to only accept these authenticated encryption and associated data type of uh, ciphers, um, and maybe hopefully will only support forward secrecy ciphers as well. So, you know, that's the, uh, you know, divides the, you know, the certificate key from the key that actually encrypts stuff. Okay, you're saying what issues a certificate, it's giving you two keys at- yeah, so file. so so here's the key for my certificate to prove who I am, mm-hmm. and this is the other key to encrypt the other key that we'll actually use to talk to okay. each other. So, uh, you know, like way back in the day, like I guess that was kind of expensive, so it didn't happen. <laughs> so, uh, if re- if you recall, uh, there was a, a little software utility called TrueCrypt, and it seemed that no one. Uh, ever really knew who made it because like they never really identified themselves 
but an investigative journalist actually smelled something that might lead to him and actually followed the trail. And it seems like this is a pretty good uh, accusation, I guess. And it seemed like it was written by a man named Paul LeRoux. Uh He was apparently uh, born in Africa, and he's lived in a lot of countries around the world. Uh, so he eventually created a software, I think it was E4M, which did essentially what TrueCrypt did. Uh, and this was like back in the 90s. Uh, at some point, he got hired by a company that their primary product was full disk encryption. And at some point, they sort of realized that uh, like this was sort of leaking out into the E4M, which morphed into TrueCrypt. So as in he was borrowing from what his company had to use in his private project. Uh, open source projects. Yes. So there's fairly strong evidence that this was the case. And if that's so, this was the guy that would be doing it. And uh, later he decided to with you know, completely go off the internet for the past 10 years. Uh, still not back on, by the way. Uh, at least in this current form, anyway. Uh, so he apparently went to the Philippines and went into like online pharmacy drugs at some point. He allegedly hired a hitman and, like, did other kind of antisocial things. Other antisocial things. So, by the way, this article is really long, but I really enjoyed it. So, if you remember, let's talk about the FBI and that iPhone. So, the FBI did indeed find an unknown exploit to get into that Farouk iPhone, and they decided that challenging Apple over, you know, having them help wasn't worth it. So they essentially, the FBI essentially dropped their pursuit uh, to get Apple to do this and instead hired this other, I think it was like this Japanese company that uh, seems like they broke into it, broke into this iPhone. Uh, so, yeah, uh, hopefully... Since Apple released a new update to iOS, that hopefully this might have fixed whatever vulnerability that was in there. Trouble is, unless someone Apple comes out and say says, though, really, you don't exactly know. Yeah, but then again, nothing exactly compels the FBI to reveal how exactly uh, they got the data off. From their perspective, the vulnerability has always been there, and we just happen to know about it Why tell anyone. And uh, who knows, maybe they didn't get anything useful off of it at all. Maybe. Because that was his work phone, and he destroyed his personal phone before... That would seem to be the phone that would matter would be his personal phone if he destroyed it. Yeah. So, the FBI agrees to unlock other iPhones in ordinary criminal investigations proving that this one-time unlock of the Farouk iPhone was false at face value, just like everyone thought. Uh, so uh, apparently there's this uh, case in Arkansas of an iPhone and iPod belonging to two teenagers accused of killing two people just days after the federal agency announced that it had gained access to an iPhone linked to the Farouk, uh, like Saeed Farouk. So... Yeah, this is 
pretty much what we are were afraid of happening, it's actually happening. If you uh, own an iPod or iPhone or whatever. So it uh, looks like we don't really have much else in this podcast. Um, so uh, along with the uh, 20th century solid state drive, uh, I got a Ethernet cable crimper and uh, some Ethernet plugs. And I made my a really long Ethernet cable about two feet shorter to hopefully bypass any kind of short that was in it. That was causing my computer to go to fast Ethernet instead of gigabit, and it appears to have worked. Very nice. So, um, yeah, the whole thing about the uh, like the crossing of the cables or the crossing of the little wires inside, like I'd be okay if it was like stripe green green, stripe blue blue, stripe green green. You know, something sensible instead of like having like a pair crossed. Which, I don't know, might actually increase the stress on little wires inside. Very well might. But, uh, yeah. And so here's the question. Who came up with that? Because if you tip both ends the same, it works functionally. This is just a standard used by manufacturers just to standardize how it works. What that means is some goof someplace at some point in time wired them up in this pattern, and that became the standard. Uh, perhaps... Uh, but then there's also the uh, the whole idea of like the transmit and receive wires need to be crossed, so like the transmit wire won't also be the transmit wire on the other end. Yes, that's true, but that's for a crossover cable, which is not what you are wiring. So yeah, networking is hard, but it's really cool when it works. It is really cool when it works. When it works. Are the key words here? Windows 98 was the toughest operating system to network. Uh, how so? It just never worked. Remember bringing up the direct cable connections and do a parallel connection to another computer? You kind of wait there. It's like, hold your breath. They're connecting. They're connecting. They're con oh, it failed. Try it again. Try it again. Okay, they're connecting. They're oh, it worked. It worked. And then five minutes later, it drops. Or then you try uh, Ethernet with Windows 98, and it kind of works sometimes, but not really. Well, um, I always remember dial-up networking typically worked when you could get through. Dial-up was more reliable. I feel like Windows 98 was made to work with dial-up internet, but it wasn't really made to work with any other type of networking. Uh, and then uh, I actually have a fast Ethernet card in 20th century, and... It actually works. That's impressive. You know, I can pull up an ancient version of Firefox on there, and I can go around to websites. Very nice. Except my own, because I have it on TLS 1.2 only, and Firefox hasn't supported, or at least uh, did not support TLS 1.2 until way later than everyone else did. <laughs> So, so I thought you just get a blank screen or what? Well, something like secure uh, connection failed or something. Okay. But all I would have to do is uh, get on my other machine and, like, enable a uh, cipher or something that would enable TLS 1.0, and it would work. So, uh, yeah. Other than that, uh, hopefully the larger uh, was a compact flash card will come. And I can, you know, load that up. So, in fact, I might not even need that USB driver anymore. 
since I can just like chuck it out of the back of the 20th century and put it into a card reader on the other machine. That's true. That would be kind of handy. Yeah. So, uh, you know, any kind of screenshots, I won't have to sneaker net anymore. You took my brain. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, like someone else is reading it. <gasps> so, uh, yeah, hopefully it will be a more secure setup that way. So, um, oh yeah, and I hope to uh, go around the town a lot more. It's your uh, train pass? Yes. How about you? Oh, well, this uh, past week I've been playing Ark Survival some here and there. Uh, having fun with that, taming various dinosaurs and killing various dinosaurs. Uh, so, yeah. That's cool. So, uh, have a good one. You too. 